the awesome thing, an awesome responsibility. I um, do it in humility, and I just seeing this text, especially, it is um, awe-inspiring. What an inspiring teach, teacher Stephen was um, in giving this text and giving this teaching. I hope you bear with me today. I'm a little bit under the weather, so I might be doing some odd things. You would please, I ask for your patience and your understanding. <clears throat> Now, most of you know that I am a, an accountant by trade. Um, currently, I work for a small company. Um, but once, a few years ago, I worked for a big uh, company that went public, went IPO. And it was a small company. I was an accounting supervisor there. And company grew. And it got to be pr- pretty fun. It was very profitable. And the owners decided to go public, go IPO. And I said, all right. You know, this is kind of fun thing. I get to get involved in this. Once in a lifetime opportunity. And, put, you know, I got trained to be, work with the SEC and how to file things. I was the point person to work on the prospectus and to work on um, all the 10Qs and 10Ks, if you know those uh, kind of things. And putting it out onto um, being listed on Wall Street, Wall Street and on NASDAQ. And I became an integral part of that process. I enjoyed every minute of it. And um, the company was doing quite well. I almost got to, I was involved in setting up a European office, a Belgium office, and we came this close to actually relocating to Belgium. We had passports ready. We were very close, but they had, fortunately, they had Arthur Anderson in Europe, so they set it up for us. So I did the legwork here, and they ended the job. But if you know, every company that gets big like that, once you go public, you are on the heavy scrutiny from the SEC. As you know, current WorldComs, Enrons of the world, failing big time. Because the SEC is the Security Exchange Commission is the watchdog for companies. So what they put out, the numbers, um, is very important. It tells you everything about the company. And I was the man who usually put out these numbers. And I presented to the board members, and these things get published. They go everywhere. So if you go to any type of um, uh, Internet site where they have, where you could check, check stock, it gives you all the press releases, news wires, and these things go on there as being the performance of the companies. The value of the stock will go up and down. Sometimes the owners who own significant shares, the values move. They use, actually gain or lose millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars on one report or one press release. So sometimes it was a good job when things are going well. But when it goes down the hill... It's not very fun. And it's usually, they kind of have the syndrome. This is what I call the kill the messenger syndrome. You bring, you're the bearer of bad news. It's not me who did those numbers. I just put the numbers together, presented, and it was as if I came up with those numbers. My performance, my performance was just to gather the numbers, present it as it is. And that's, as the company started to slide, It was difficult, and I felt a lot of pressure, almost resentment, because I was being the bearer of bad news. Simply, that was it. They were killing the messenger. The pressure was too great. I ended up leaving the company. And later on, the company is now barely existing now. It's a shell of what was once before. But what I want to focus on today is Stephen is a classic case of the bearer of bad news to the Jewish leaders. He gave what was the ultimate truth. And the bottom line is the Jewish leaders 
as we see in John, as Pastor James has been teaching us, they just couldn't handle it. And pretty much the same reason why they nailed Jesus to the cross. They became so upset, they murdered the messenger of truth. Just as a background, the author of this book is all likely to be Luke. We all know that he wrote the Gospel of Luke. But the actual better title, they say it's Acts. What is Acts? Acts of what? They say it's Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Probably a better title. This book shows that Holy Spirit is directing, controlling, and empowering the ministry that strengthened and ultimately built the church. Many say that to understand the remainder of the rest of uh, New Testament, this is a bridge, a key book, going from the Gospels to the Epistles. A key book, a pivotal book to understand in order for us to understand the New Testament. It is, acts as a book that is primarily a historical narrative. We learned that in Acts 16. Um, but it has no companion by itself to the New Testament. So this book can be studied independently. However, many early church fathers testify, and many do today, um, that this book goes in hand in hand with the Gospel of Luke. It is the second volume to the Gospel of Luke. That Luke is an author. Okay. Luke um, was an accurate historian. He was a physician by trade, and we, they uh, put great many church, early church fathers put great historical worthiness of this book. Um, at, you know, you read this book and it's very detailed. Luke cites more than 100 personal names. You saw in Acts 16, many personal names and where they were from. Very detailed. There were hundreds of names and he gives um, where they're from and even some of their titles they held. Okay. And his presentation of historical, and again, Acts 16 is a perfect uh, lead into this, uh, good historical and geographical data and is superb in his detail. They say Luke is qualified to write this. He was an educated person. He was also a close companion of Paul. He was with Paul. That's why he says in Acts 16, we or us, because he was there. He actually witnessed these events as well. And they say he, you know, it makes sense for Luke to be a close companion of Paul. Paul in his journeys was physically beat up many times. Who better to have than a physician near him um, like Luke? This book was written about 61-63 AD um, and it covers approximately about 30-33 years. Okay. And it co- covers the same period, approximately the same period as the Pauline epistles. And it parallels the Paul's epistles and the Acts accounts are very close together. Okay. Again, it is the second volume of Luke. And they say the, um, Luke's twofold view of the Gospel. It says, First Gospel of Luke traces a story of God sending His Son, the incarnate Christ, who would ultimately die for sins of man. And the book of Acts traces a story of the sending of the Holy Spirit, another branch of the Trinity, and the, the, how God is forming the body of Christ, the church. According to Lucan theology, the theology of Luke, there are three basic fundamental truths that are clearly evident through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It is clear and it is very simple. Number one is that salvation has been prepared by God. He's the author of salvation. Number two, salvation is bestowed by Christ. And number three, 
Salvation is offered to all peoples, to everyone. The great statement, especially in that particular time in history, it is actually records the initial response to the Great Commission and the first um, work of the church history ever penned. And it uh, deeply stresses the work of the Holy Spirit. He transitions from Christ to the apostles, Old Covenant to the New Covenant, to Israel, to the church. So if you know, want to know detail on that, you should have come to our last retreat, our Old Covenant to New Covenant, where Dr. Pettigrew went over that, and his book is still available, New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit. You could pick that up. So this is a, a plug to make sure you go to all the retreats. So these are pivotal in our further teachings later on. Okay. Another important a- aspect of Acts is that there's a mounting persecution of the church. In general public, it is the Christians are being persecuted and laid to die. But the interesting thing about this is that many rabbis in the Jewish establishment in general public felt that this was going to die. It's like many cults. When the leader dies, everything kind of fades away. But Christ died, and it got stronger and stronger. And even as apostles started dying, it kept on growing and growing. And even uh, on chapter 5, of rabbi, who was a rabbi, who was a teacher of Paul, Gamaliel, he talks about, he advises them to ease up on persecution, because this is going to all end soon. We don't need to go out and do this such... With vigor. They're going to crash the church. We'll crash and burn soon. And there was a general attitude like this. But, but it wasn't ending and the persecution got greater. So as a textual account of Stephen in this text. Stephen is first introduced in chapter 6 a little bit earlier than what Bent read for us. That um, we are often told of his death. But I found this week his teaching was even great. It was extraordinary to listen to him. He was one of the seven people chosen when the apostles wanted to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Man of great character. He was chosen probably in the Jerusalem church. There were about a thousand men. He was one of the seven chosen. And choosing reveals him um, this man of high esteem the church had for him. They approved of him. Up until this point in church history, Peter was a dominant figure. They say, Stephen is the link or the bridge between Peter and Paul right before Paul becomes comes to the forefront. And we'll see, understand what pivotal part Stephen has in Paul's life. And again, Stephen obviously is he's a man of good uh, man of full God's grace and power. So I want to t- divide this text up into three sections Stephen's arrest, Stephen's teaching, and Stephen's death. You know, I'm sort of coming all the way, full circle. In 1984, I first became a Sunday school teacher. I gave the first teaching, and it was this text. I pretty much blew it because I got critiqued very heavily. I'm glad none of you were in my class. I know you guys were in Sunday school, but none of you were in my class. It was a class of 5th and 6th grade Sunday school students. And um, today, I'm hoping that God will allow me to redeem myself this morning. Stephen's arrest. It is not, not told why or explain what opposition arose against him. We don't know the content of the actual debate. Um, but we know that 
the Stephen stood on solid ground. And what they resorted to was they secretly plotted to bring false witnesses, the text tells us, against him. It basically, in a sort of in a political arena, it's like mudslinging. You're finding things to uh, argue against him as a substitute for facts. They seized him and brought him into Sanhedrin. And the accusation of Stephen was that he spoke against the holy place and against the law. The temple and the law were basically sacred. They're like the sacred cows for Jews. And the temple was the Holy Spirit, a place of God's presence. And the law was the revelation of God's mind and will. So since the temple was God's house and the law was God's mind, to speak against these things were basically equivalent to speaking against God. Blasphemy. And that's what he was accused of. And Stephen's words were perfectly accurate. It was Jesus who threatened to destroy the temple, right? Matthew 26, 27, Mark 15. And to fulfill the law. And Stephen was fully echoing these teachings, these words. Jesus said the temple, regarding the temple, that he would replace the temple. But what Jesus was referring to was his, his body. He was going to raise it up in three days. His resurrection, that's what he was referring to. And the law, Stephen was accused of disrespecting the law in relation to Sabbath. But he wasn't disrespecting the law. The scribes did not understand what he was talking about. They misinterpreted their interpretation of Moses. Remember what Christ said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill them. Remember last week, Pastor James taught us the moral law continues and does not change. The ceremonial laws are done away with. Now, the reality of Christ had replaced all these ritualistic systems. Okay. So, in a nutshell, Stephen, what she was going to say was, Jesus himself is the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. So, let's go to the, the big this, the text of Stephen's teaching. His sermon, it is one of the longest sermons in the Bible. And certainly in Acts, it's the longest sermon in Acts recorded. You know, some of your titles in your Bibles will say Stephen's defense, but really that's not accurate. You know, usually when you're in a court of law and you're defending yourself, there's a sense of explanation. You have to defend what has happened. You have to explain your situation and sort of maybe being apologetic to what? Just to gain an acquittal. Okay? Many call this the defense, but I disagree. Rather, it's Stephen indicting and prosecuting the Jewish establishment. There is no sense of Stephen appealing to them. He is rather on an offensive. This is Stephen's offense. Okay. Usually the accused will do whatever to avoid a guilty verdict. Maybe a loophole. But Stephen is proclaiming the message of Christ. Although he was accused, he was a defendant. He was actually speaking as the judge. In actuality, I think he had no interest in being a credit. Only interest that he had was to tell the truth. This sermon set the tone for the defense of Christianity against Jewism in the history of the church. It set the tone and um, through Stephen's teaching, it laid the foundation for that. And as the trial begins, Stephen is actually indicting those who, he, who have ignored over the years generations, God's overtures. It is one of the most 
potent. What I'm about to tell you today is one of the most potent, amazing sermons ever preached. He gives a panoramic view. You could just read this and a good, get a good idea of Jewish Old Testament history. This is a cliff note version of the Old Testament. You could just read this and if you grasp it. By reciting the groundwork of his teaching, the history of Israel. But why did he do that? You, you knew these rabbis probably knew it very well. They knew Jewish history very well. But he also knew they were proud of it. And they were proud of it for the wrong reasons. Then he indicts his hearers for rejecting the Messiah. Then he points to them. And he points them out that their forefathers were spiritually blinded. They rejected Joseph, rejected Moses, and ultimately at the end, rejected Christ and God. Then he presents the awesomeness of the Messiah. And he ties in Joseph and Moses as the types of Christ in the Old Testament. Stephen's purpose, again, is not to point out history to them. They knew history better than he did. But he is establishing that he did not blaspheme God. Moses, or the law, or the temple, that it was actually, they were guilty of not knowing the true God. The most important aspect of this message is the indictment of the Jewish leaders for failing to recognize the true Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to break down his teaching into two sections. Number one, two main themes. Number one, the place of God. He's saying the place of God's presence has no meaning. Number two, it is the rejection of God's messengers. First one, place of God's presence has no meaning. Bottom line, God is no respecter of places. That's a basic question Stephen asks. Did God's presence in a certain place cause these Israelites in the past and their forefathers to be more obedient to the law as given by Moses? The answer is clearly no. Again, Stephen is venturing, he's getting to the point where they are hitting them where it hurts. The sacred cows of the Israelites. The first issue of the temple. The holy place was revered very highly by their leaders. And he asks, what value does places have? So basically what he's saying is, to these Israelite forefathers, the places have become gods themselves, not the true God. There was no relationship. The buildings they were worshipping, in, he's indicting them of that. In verse 2 and 8, it talks about God appearing to Abraham and, Abraham and tells him that, that his descendants would dwell in the foreign land. He depicts Abraham as a man of truth, and that by faith he obeyed God. And sovereignly um, took up the call and left his homeland. He tells them that Abraham worshipped in Mesopotamia, Haran, and Canaan. Places were not restricted. God goes wherever and people worshipped him. A particular place or building is irrelevant. For hundreds of years, he's pointing out they did that. The important thing is, here is, Stephen is proving to them that God revealed His glory 
wherever he went, that he is, God is not limited to a geographical area. Same goes for Joseph, he points out. Then what did Joseph do? He was sent to Egypt by his, the patriarchs, their forefathers, and he worshipped them there in Egypt. Then who else he talks about? He talks about Moses. He was in Midian. And he, God appeared to him before that. God appeared to him there. God commanded Moses to return to Egypt, speaking to him, and free his people, and lead them to the promised land. We clearly see God's faithfulness to Israel, both in Egypt and the wilderness. In verse 37, it says, God appeared to Moses in Mount Sinai. Again, middle of the desert, not in a Jewish territory, but in a Gentile territory. He told him, take off your sandals. The place where you stand is holy ground. This holy ground clearly was in Jerusalem. The holy ground was wilderness. You could say, the entire wilderness was God's temple. This proves that God meets His people, not just inside of the borders of Palestine or in confines of a building or a temple. One of the, one of the greatest miracles did God do when He parted the Red Sea? Was that in Israel? No. In summation, Stephen said to them, if you're guided by what Scripture tells you, you know that God is God of all places and all people. That he's indicting them of. That you have been given special privileges as nation of God and you have failed your responsibility to obey. He is a God that is everywhere, every nation, and everyone is accessible. And he has, God is accessible to everyone who seek him. And you could see the tension building. Man, if you said that to the Jewish leader, you could see him tension building. You know, they say, you know, Stephen, there's some the phrase now, they're keeping it real. Stephen kept it real. This is telling them like it is. In verse 48 and 49, Stephen says, this is like crescendo. We're hitting the climax now. Okay. He says, however, the Most High does not dwell in the temples made with hands. And he quotes Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house Will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place of my rest has my, not, my hand not made all these things? And Solomon clearly says this, says this. King of Israel in 1 Kings 8.27 Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built? Solomon said it. Isaiah said it. They just didn't get the point. The reality is, Stephen wasn't guilty of blaspheming against a temple, but rather the Jewish leaders should be guilty of confining God to the temple. That's what he was saying. You know, you could justifiably, the leaders, Jewish leaders were so upset, because what did, they th- what did they think? They thought the Messiah would come and take rain from the temple. The temple is destroyed. Where is the Messiah going to go? The problem was they had wrong understanding. It was wrong. The second aspect of his teaching is the rejection of the gospel messengers. Ultimately, in the end, 
the biggest rejection is rejection of Christ. This teaching shows repeated rejection of Israel, of God's messengers. God takes their initiative, but they refused. God provided for them, and they were faithless, thus they disobeyed. Stephen points out the patriarchs of Israel, twelve sons of Jacob, rejected Joseph and sold him. So this point is, the rebellion of the nation of Israel began with the patriarchs themselves. The Jewish nation persecuted and killed God's prophets that were sent to them. Just as Joseph's brothers persecuted Joseph. In a similar case with Jesus, they killed him. They repeatedly disobeyed or rejected Moses. Repeatedly. Verse 37 and 39 clearly tells us that God promised Moses promised to deliver them, but they rejected him ultimately. Verses 40 and 41, we see the depravity of Israelites as we observe them erecting a golden calf with their own hands to worship and offer sacrifice to this idol. And they rejoiced in the work of this hand. And they looked back to captivity, to Egypt, where they were captives, slaves, under oppressive rule for hundreds of years. This is crazy. They were looking back. They wanted to go back. You know what the importance of the golden calf is? It is a god of Egypt, one of the Egyptian gods. They were building this to worship. They saw the mighty work that God did, a part in the Red Sea, the miracles He did, and they wanted to go back. How depraved is that? The problem was, Stephen summarizing the sad and idolatrous history of Israel. He's condemning them of this. The problem was, Israel as a nation wanted to worship and obey only what they could see. They were guilty of revering places and things and idols instead of God. But God was still faithful. Stephen says, God still turned away his judgment. He looked the other way and still delivered them. And he allowed them to go into the promised land. They accused Stephen of blasphemy against Moses by his responding by saying, You have been breaking the laws for hundreds of years. Hello? Then here's the second crescendo, another pinnacle sermon. This man, this is the most, one of the most keeping it real statements in all of Scripture. It says, You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law in a direct danger and have not kept it. 
I think Stephen's conclusion is it's not said here, and I would just venture to guess. You have sinned big time. You have messed up for hundreds of years. You and your forefathers have sinned big time. Bottom line is you need a savior. You just killed him a few years ago. But that's where your answer lies. These words are defiant words. They refused to recognize the truth and they prided themselves on physical things and ritualistic activities. He says, his words are precise. He says, uncircumcised hearts and ears. Their fathers have rejected Joseph, Moses, and ultimately rejected Christ, the Messiah. Stephen adds powerfully one more thing. He says, which one of the prophets, prophets did your fathers not persecute? Man, I wish I could speak the truth when I'm in this kind of position. How powerful is that? Which one of you have, not, you, have you not killed, gotten rid of for your own interests? Stephen echoes the words of Christ in John. What did he say? If you believe in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. They truly know, knew who Moses was and what he thought and what was he was about and his God. They would understand the true God. Stephen reaches his conclusion to his message. It shows that Israel's history is one of consistent accounts of God's grace and consistent accounts of Israel's sin and rebellion. God gave the law, it was disobeyed. God sent his prophets, they rejected them. The prophets spoke of coming Messiah, and they were killed. And they killed the actual Messiah. I would say this, it was not Stephen who deserved death, but rather his audience. Rather his audience. You know, this teaching is one of the most powerful teachings I've ever read. It is prominent in Christian history. It turns the tide. It begin, his death turns the momentum on for the gospel. It begins the onslaught of the gospel onto the Gentile communities. With all its enemies, gospel goes forth. It endures. And this is why you and I are here today. The true greatness of the sermon is his courage. What? To bottom line, to tell the truth. Tell the truth. Obviously, the verdict was not faithful, we know. But in God's eyes, it was the most truly brilliant and godly sermons ever recorded. Because the bottom line for a preacher, what do we want to do here? We don't want, we're not here to make you laugh or entertain you for an hour or so. We have, our goal is to honor God through our preaching. And Stephen did that and is a great example to our preachers. One of the greatest sermons ever uttered then, unfortunately, through the depth of their sins, they lead him to death. We see the conclusion of the trial and the end of his life. You know, what we talk about often, we want to have a spirit-filled life. This is an example of spirit-filled death. This is a model for all saints to desire in the last moment of our lives. His death was inevitable. They murdered God's prophets, murdered Christ, 
What prevents from murdering him? It says, we see the gods, um, their hearts, the Jewish leaders' hearts hardening. The sobering reality, when men persist and willfully harden their hearts, like God says, the scripture says, God hardened the Pharaoh's hearts. You know, this is more than just hardening the heart against the gospel. They're taking violent action. They're ready to go. In fact, no ver- verdict was pronounced. We don't see that. Death sentence was not legal at all. But at the time, Roman governing law says, Roman only a Roman official can hand out death penalty. This is why at least in Christ's case, they did it right. They went to Pilate. But interesting thing was, in this, the governor of this land still probably is Pilate. They probably thought, hey, we did it to their leader. We could do it to this guy. I'm guessing here a little bit. And verse 54 says, they were furious. They're gnashing their teeth at him. You know, if I was a preacher and I said something and you guys see you guys gnashing your teeth, I knew I'm in trouble. So Stephen knew he was in trouble. They say they rushed him like a mob. It is a vivid, they, they were losing control. It's a vivid portrayal of their fury. Casting aside their, any other dignity they had. This is the highest court of Israel. They were reduced to a frenzy, murderous mob. They say they threw down their clothes, like their jackets were coming off, their coats were coming off, to murder an innocent person. They took him and dragged him outside the city walls to stone him. You know, in the rabbinical tradition, the method of execution of stoning is done in an orderly fashion. They say they take him to a place at least twice his height, with rocks underneath, they throw him down. Okay. And when they fall, they might die. They don't die. They put him on his back. And one by one, they drop a large stone from the cliff until he dies. And that's the actual traditional, methodical form of stoning. We don't see that here. There's nothing legal about this. They went out. It was basically a free-fall approach. This validates that they took the laws into their own hands. Stephen did not deserve death. But in his death, verse 59, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In one of the most amazing statements, he says, just like Christ, just like Christ. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And Stephen sees the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is only used here outside the Gospels standing at the right hand of God. God allows to see and see the glory of God. He sees Christ standing at the right hand. As a Christian, what I wouldn't give to see that. Don't we rejoice that one day we'll see that? What a privilege and honor that would be. It's one of the most beautiful and awesome views portrayed in Scripture. God allows Stephen to see God's glory. By the grace of God, we see Stephen on an island of serenity, a peaceful heart. We see a spiritual man looking towards heaven as he faces death. And who was there? Who was there? Saul, who would later become Paul. One of the greatest preachers, missionary, church leaders of all time. They say Paul Saul was a young man, probably in the early 20s. Some say 
he was the one who was arguing against Stephen. We don't know that for sure, but we know he was there. You know, both life and in death, Stephen was much like his Lord. Full of spirit. I am not equating him to Christ, but his actions are like Christ-like. Because don't we all want to be Christ-like? Aren't we striving to live our life to be Christ-like? And I ask this, the short period Stephen appears in the Bible, was there ever a man more like Jesus as a recipient of grace? He displays much grace. What a testimony. So I want to just conclude this sermon by three observations. And I'll give you a couple application points. Three observations of Stephen's character. Number one, a spirit-filled man stands for the truth regardless of consequences. spirit-filled man stands for the truth regardless of consequences. In standing for the truth, we will face mounting opposition. This is guaranteed. There are many people today who suggest that it doesn't matter on what you believe in what God you believe. They argue that there are many ways to God. Tell that to Stephen. Tell that to Stephen. During the entire debate or trial, Stephen does not back down. Throughout the ordeal, his courage shines through. He continues to stand on the truth. Enemies complains get stronger. Their anger is mounting. The gospel message of Jesus Christ does not waver. Though his life is on the line, his faithful through a thrill. Second observation I would make is that spiritual man is willing to forgive. We see the heart of a true Christian. Heart of a true Christian is he who forgives. Nothing is more godlike than to forgive. If we want to imitate God, I taught this a couple months ago, is that we should readily practice forgiveness. Remember, again, let's go back to Paul. Saul was there, condemning Stephen. What does Stephen pray? Forgive them of the sin. You know, Augustine, early church father said this, and this is powerful. He said this, If Stephen had not prayed, the church may have not had Paul. I believe God forgave Paul that day. And by chapter 13 of that same book, he becomes the most dominant Christian figure. And this event has lasting impressions on Paul. How do I know that? In Acts 22, 30, listen to what he says. Paul says this, commanded the chiefs and priests and all their councils to appear. And the Paul brought Paul down and set them before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. And Paul said to them, God will strike you, you whitewashed walls. Sounds very familiar. Just like Stephen. We all know in church history what kind of man Paul became. What impact he had. And all of us here as Christians are affected by him. 
We will study his next epistle, Philippians. There was no greater missionary than Paul. He wrote half of New Testament. He was a Jew, but he was instrumental in inclusion of Gentiles into the family of Christ. Some say this. The reason, one of the reasons why Stephen died was that Saul could become the Apostle Paul. What an example. You know, we see a great example, ideal example of God's sovereignty. You know, we don't, sometimes terrible things happen like this. An innocent person dies. And we see that in our world today. We don't know. We have questions. I'm sure people had questions when Stephen died. But look what the impact it has in Paul's life, who he becomes. Watching this event unfold before him, I bet, I'm willing to bet, that he would remember Stephen. He remembers Stephen when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Watching these events unfold. And God uses that, this event, to change the world, change Christendom. And if we were to ask Stephen, was it worth it? I'm guessing here a little bit. I've never talked to him. Was it worth it? I bet. Stephen saw Paul's life living for Christ. He was said yes. And probably had a smile on his face. Third point. Third observation. The spiritual man understands sacrifice. You know, we live in a modern time, 21st century. Martyrdom is popularized by people who strap on bombs and go into places and blow up innocent people and innocent children. That's not martyrdom. That's not true martyr. True martyr is Stephen. Period. You know, in contrast to Stephen and martyr, what does martyrs teach about us in the New Testament? They do not seek death or suffering. They don't find glory in that. But they find glory in obeying God and speaking the truth. It's not a Christian principle to seek to die. We don't seek to just to die. There's no point in that. But there's point in speaking the truth and let consequences fall where they may. And let God be honored. And let God do His will through every event and every man. Is willingness to stand for the truth and live out the truth. Whether martyrdom happens, someone dies, it is more important for us to honor God. That is the understanding of sacrifice. His self, Stephen's selfless, fearless proclamation of the gospel led him to pay the ultimate price for his commitment to truth. He was the first Christian martyr. His death was the first in long part, line of persecutions and martyrs. Although he served for a very short time, it had a great impact on the history of the church and the foundation of the church. The fact that I am standing here today, I think it's testimony partly unto his faith. Sacrifice. Look at For standing for the truth, he sacrificed. I have two applications. One for the believers and unbelievers today. Believers. 
my fellow brothers and Christ, uh, sisters in Christ, my brethren. Living for Christ requires sacrifice. How much is the gospel count costing you today? What is it costing you? Stephen lived his last day remarkably like Christ-like. He died like Christ in similar fashion. He lived out Christ's power with boldness, standing tall, doing whatever God wanted him to do. Are you this bold? Or do we count the cost? Count the pains? The things are going to be. Or do we count our comforts? Each generation of believers, generation of believers, has the same call. The Lord makes himself known through what? He chooses to make himself known through people to share the gospel. Cast, um, gospel is passed on from generation, second, third, generations upon generations without anything being lost. We don't have a diminished version of the Bible, version of the Bible today than we did back then. It is the same. My question to you today is how much are you suffering for the gospel? How much are we laboring for it? Are we more sensitive to our embarrassments, shyness? I would ask you to get over that. We need to be bold, as Stephen was. Try to be comfortable in the sharing the gospel. Don't mix. It's oil and water. We hide behind our jobs, our schools, our families. Gospel will not go forward to the next generation. How committed are we to preaching the gospel, even to our lives? I would appeal to this day. I know many of you have family members who are not saved. You, I know you pray for them and you grieve over them for what might happen in, through the rest of eternity, their eternity. But my question to you today, we all want them to be saved, right? But how much are you sacrificing for their salvation? Is it a part-time thing? where you do work, you have entertainment, you do everything else, then preach to your friends. Preach to your mom and dad or to your brothers and sisters. What is it costing you today to gain their salvation? It costs Stephen's life to tell the truth. What sacrifices are you making for the sake of the gospel? We know we are called to live pure and upright lives so we would be an example to unbelievers, especially those closely around us, our mom and dads, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, maybe your in-laws. But are you truly sacrificing or suffering even a bit to lead them to Christ? Or is it a part-time job when everything else is done, whatever is left over, then you do it. Maybe nothing. Maybe not much. Well, there is our answer. God wants us to be like Stephen like, willing to suffer for Christ. Do everything we can to persuade. Appeal to them. In order that somehow they will receive salvation. Let's examine ourselves, our time comparison to our activities, everything we do in our lives. 
for our loved ones. To share the gospel with them first. There's a year of evangelism. Start in your homes first. Forget Czech Republic. Forget Ireland for now. Look to Garden Grove, Cerritos, Irvine. I don't want you to forget Czech altogether, you know, but pray for that as well. As for the unbelievers, do you need God's forgiveness today? Christ is saying, as Stephen said, you need a Savior. Sin is the issue. What is Stephen's last words? Lord, do not hold their sins against them. Sin is the issue. We need a remedy from sin. Everyone does. Christ is the answer. Don't you want to know the Lord of Stephen? Unlike the Jewish leaders, don't allow your heart to be hardened. Seek the truth of Stephen, what he taught this morning. And the Bible wants people about, warns people about hardened hearts. We see the Pharaoh. I think we see it here. The Jewish leaders. In your place of your life now, you have not received Christ. Don't let your hearts be hardened. It may be too late. You become hostile to Christ's message. Open your heart to Christ. Do not be deceived by your sin. Christ is the answer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what an awesome and meaningful, what a heavy weight of a sermon it is to see the boldness of Stephen preaching the truth to those hearts who are hardened, knowing that his outcome would be unfavorable, though he did not back down and spoke the truth. But God, we pray that in our lives, that we would live with the same boldness, that our lives reflect the attitude of Stephen. May we strive to be more like him. May all of us Look to Him for example, so that we may live as a bold message of the gospel. I ask that you would just use us as your instrument, as you did with Stephen. We thank you for these words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.